This is the cheeky introductory part of the podcast where the music is playing in the background. Welcome to that part of this podcast. Alright, so this shit is called Aunt Marge's Big Mistake. So Harry comes downstairs and his fat cousin has a new television in the kitchen because he's too much of a lazy working class guy to walk from the kitchen to the living room. And then the narrator points out that Dudley is so fat that his chins wobble as he eats. And then it refers to his piggy little eyes watching the television and that he eats continually. Just absolutely great stuff here. Just not awful at all. Really beautiful, lovely, positive shit we got here for the kids. Here in this kid's book, chapter two. And then it describes Uncle Vernon, and it goes back into talking about his neck. Like, I don't know if you remember this, but the first book had a whole thing about Uncle Vernon's neck. And, like, Aunt Petunia had a long, dumb neck, and Vernon had a short, not a lot of neck. So apparently the amount of neck you have has to be in a certain normal range for the narrator to not roast you for it. The narrator is like a neck fetishist. I don't know what's going on there. And, and so then, in a very strange twist of irony, they're all watching the news. And the news is like, black is armed and dangerous. And I'm thinking to myself, oh god, this, this isn't going to be fun. And the news is like, anyone with any info about black should contact the authorities. And then Vernon is like, look at that filthy layabout. Look at his hair. And the book is basically just like, so Harry went downstairs to see all these fat pieces of shit working class people being all gross and disgusting. And then they all comment on how a prisoner is gross and disgusting, which is bad. But when I, the narrator, do it, it's good. So then Uncle Vernon gets all pissed at the news for not saying where the prisoner escaped from. Which, in fairness to him, is a valid thing to be pissed at the news about. Because that's, I mean, that's just a poorly reported story if they don't tell you that. That's, that's one of the few actually important pieces of information that you might want. And then the narrator is like, so Aunt Petunia is an ugly weirdo with a horse face. And she's a nosy little dunce. And she loves sticking her shitty deformed nose into other people's business. So that is just hitting you with that and then vernon professes his support for capital punishment which is funny because like that's obviously i think a british cultural way of showing us that he's like a morally bankrupt person even though when this book was written in 1999 uh the u.s at least had like a 75 percent support rate for capital punishment actually side note in the 21 years since this book was written the u.s support for capital punishment dipped to be slightly less than 50%, and then rose a little bit, and now it hovers at around 55%. But it's still trended down by, like, 20% over the from the time that book was written till now, which is kind of cool. Also, by the way, Britain isn't actually too different in its views of capital punishment. The trend seems to be a small spike to just above half after an all-time low of slightly below half as well. I mean, it kind of, it, it, you know, it depends on how you ask the question and how people are primed and things like that. 
but I, and I can't find anything to, to suggest that the that the United Kingdom ever reached anything like the U.S. highs of support during the '90s, which in the U.S. it, it reached like 80 percent in the '90s. Anyway, so then Uncle Vernon is like, "I'm gonna pick up my sister Marge," and Harry is immediately frightened. And but then the backstory of why he's frightened is just like totally typical shit that Vernon and Petunia do to him all the time anyway. So I'm not sure why he's frightened of this other lady. It's just like more of the same bullshit. It's like, oh, she hit him with a stick one time and she gave him dog biscuits for Christmas this one time and her dog chased him up a tree. And it's like, that's a Tuesday for Harry Potter in the Dursley household. And then and then Vernon points his fat finger at Harry. Yep, his fat finger. And Vernon's like, first, you're going to be nice and respectful to her. Which, I mean, that honestly, that's a, that's a fair rule. And second, you're not going to talk about your wizard shit, because we don't like it when you talk about your your wizard shit. And then third, we lied to her about the school you go to. We told her you go to bad kid school for shit heels. And Harry's like, how dare you? I go to the wizard school for shit heels. And it's so weird to me that, like, the things that Harry just deals with, and then the things that just completely send him over the edge. Like, why the fuck would he care about the fact that his uncle lied to his sister, two people that he hates and never wants to see again, about what school he goes to? Like, why would that matter at all? And then at some point, Uncle Vernon uh, clapped Dudley on his porky shoulder. More just very good and cool stuff here. And so Harry comes up with the idea where he's like, okay, how about instead of lying about what school I go to and accidentally slipping up, maybe why don't you, Vernon, just sign the permission slip so I can go to the wizard village place? And Uncle Vernon's like, oh no, if you slip up, I'll just continue to abuse you. And Harry's like, but that won't change the fact that your weird sister knows I'm into wizard shit. Which I guess is a good point. But then, okay, so then here's the deal that they make. The deal is that if Harry is good for his aunt, then Vernon will sign the form. Which seems like a dumb deal from Harry's perspective. Because the signature comes after Harry has already performed his side of the bargain. So an untrustworthy guy like Vernon can just break his promise and not sign the form. And there's fuck all Harry can do about it because he's already completed his end of the bargain. Come on, Harry, you're supposed to be a fucking smart wizard guy. Get your shit together, bro. Seriously, dude. Harry's basically like, what if I give you something to hold over my head so that I have to do the thing you already want me to do, thereby ruining all of my own leverage here? And then he's like, I know, I'll nominate Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court and and hope Vernon's desire for compromise wins out over his lust for power. And so then Harry goes back to his room, and he kicks his owls out, and Vernon comes back with Marge, and Marge is described as basically exactly awful, exactly as awful looking as Vernon. She, they even describe her as having a mustache, which is good, because it's always good to reinforce the idea that ugly people are evil. And then Dudley's walk is described as a waddle, because you see he's fat, then we get some more description of Dudley's, quote, many chins and his, quote, fat fist. So in case you missed the other 25 references to his size in the last few pages, or in case you yourself are a fat kid with some, you know, stubborn remaining remnants of self-love that need to be squeezed out of you, you know, there you go. 
And also, Aunt Marge has a dog named Ripper, and the dog sucks. But the narrator does something where when Aunt Marge's voice is described, the narrator refers to it as barking and growling. Like, the narrator is trying to show either, like, the oneness that Marge has with her dog, or they're trying to show Harry's disorientation, and he, like, can't distinguish Marge from the dog. Like, they've just melded into his mind. Which would be kind of a cool technique if it were something that I thought the narrator was actually doing on purpose. And I don't. And so then they all start talking about Harry's schooling, and Marge is like, do they hit you with a cane? And Harry's like, oh yes, they do hit me with a cane. And Marge is like, not hard enough. Something is happening in this chapter where Marge is comparing Harry to Dudley and is like constantly nitpicking all the things Harry does, like the way he speaks and stuff, whereas Dudley is obviously getting a pass for all his nonsense. And it occurs to me that perhaps Harry's coloring of the story is unreliable. Right, so just go with me on this. Maybe Dudley is actually a good kid. And Marge is all mean to Harry because she genuinely thinks that he's like a troublemaker. And, well, you know, that isn't a good way of dealing with a troublemaker. It is a little strange to me that, that Harry hasn't bothered to internalize any of the stuff that happens to him by this family. Like, that is a common thing with abuse. They start to believe they deserve the abuse and that it's their fault and things. But Harry is sort of uniquely incapable of that kind of internalization. Which, if he's a reliable narrator, is actually a really good thing for his development, and it says a lot about his resilience. But if he's unreliable, then I think the thing that he's doing is actually going the opposite way, and he's developing a persecution complex. Right? So rather than internalize all this stuff and think it's all his fault, he's thinking that nothing he does is his fault. So, I don't know. I'm not ready to call it just yet, but that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Is my man Harry Potter developing a persecution complex in conjunction with some unreliable narration? And so then, so anyway, uh, Marge and Vernon discuss the merits of the nature versus nurture debate. Marge is firmly on the nature side. She's almost Hobbesian, really, like, but like selectively Hobbesian. She literally just thinks there's an evil in some people. At least Hobbes was egalitarian in his hatred of individuals. But then, as she elaborates, it turns out it's actually a genetic thing. She's convinced that Harry's mom is awful, and so Harry is awful. And then the wine glass in Marge's hand shatters. And my initial thought here is that Harry's doing some magic shit. But then Marge says that the same thing happened to her early. It's earlier at some, like, I don't know, some Professor Clusterfuck's house or whatever. So who the fuck knows? But then the narrator explains it almost like it's like an involuntary act of magic on Harry's part. So then Harry decides that the way to deal with Marge's bullshit is to just always think about that magic broom care kit that he got, which I think is a masturbation metaphor. And so then they're eating, and Marge is commenting on how Harry is a runt, and she had to drown a runt of a runt dog of hers once because she's just a cartoonishly evil person. And then she turns to Petunia and she's like, yeah, your sister sucked shit. What did her husband do for a living? And then they're all like, oh, he was, he was an unemployed roustabout. Just a, he just never had a job. Didn't, didn't work until he was in his 40s. And Harry is like, he just can't help himself. He's like, that's just not true. And Marge is like, I need more to drink. And then she starts being all like, your parents died in a car crash, probably alcohol-induced. You know, like she becomes that woman. 
And Harry's like, that's not true. And then turns her into like an inflatable balloon person. So Vernon starts yelling because that's, I mean, that's presumably what you do when your sisters become like a fucking, like the kid from the Willy Wonka movie. And the dog starts attacking Vernon's leg and just all hell breaks loose. And Harry just runs and gets all his wizard shit. And then Vernon is like, turn her back into a normal person, deflate, deflate this woman. And Harry's like, no, because I too believe in a retributive system of justice. And he fucking takes off. And that's how the chapter ends. And, like, the last few pages of this chapter were actually pretty cool and well-constructed because you had all the, like, heightening tension that just explodes into action. And so at least at the level of pacing and development, the writing is getting much better. But the sort of... I want to... Let's talk about Let's talk about these theories of justice because, first, for a few reasons. First, because it's something that came up pretty heavily in this chapter. And second, because it's something that I'm interested in. So, right, justice is, like, a fucking complicated topic. Lots of ways of thinking about it. But it, it's interesting to me because Harry is, is he's espousing this sort of retributive justice that's based on, to Harry, is based on agency, right? He says, like, yo, Marge is bad because she does bad things, and the fact that she does bad things is what makes it so she ought to be punished. And Marge's view of justice and punishment is, is actually pretty incoherent, so at one point she says, if you're rotten on the inside, there's nothing anyone can do about that. But then at another point, she says she thinks that the beatings of Harry at his made-up bad boy school should be harsher, so she's conflicted on the issue of whether anything can be done. And then Vernon, on the other hand, he appears to be more consistent in his view. He says, you know, hanging is the only way to deal with these kinds of people. So he takes a sort of hard-line, you know, incapacitation view, in which case, like, Right, if you, if you think there's literally nothing that can be done to rehabilitate or correct the actions of somebody, you might think that hanging them is the proper approach. It's a sort of utilitarian thing that's been around for a long time. Needless to say, I have my philosophical disagreements with that, but, you know, we'd be here all day. The way that philosophers sort of deal with retributive justice is they just, they just sort of assume it. Right, that's the first thing that they do. It's like, oh, it comports with our intuitions about what we think is just or whatever. Right, that's like their foundation. If you read Kant, he'll say some bullshit like, oh, retribution is the only valid form of justice, and you don't do it because you care about the criminal or because you care about the victim. You do it because you care about the law. Fucking care about the law, man. And that's the only thing that matters is the law. And this is, but this is like Harry Potter's approach, right? Because it, it sort of presupposes a sort of individual moral agency. And then in the 20th century, the idea of individual moral agency becomes kind of problematized. Because, you know, you got people who, their circumstances or social relations or, you know, whatever, leading them to commit crime, that sort of thing. You got your guys like, like Feuerbach, who, who he thinks like moral obligation is preceded by the sort of the basic necessities of life, right? So in other words, if you're starving and you steal a loaf of bread, that's he, he doesn't think that's morally blameworthy. Whereas Kant, I think, would. And so basically, and I'm obviously simplifying here, but for most of Western civilization, the Harry Potter school of retributive justice was the dominant one. It's sort of based on all of our Judeo-Christian worldview going back thousands of years. And then, largely in the 20th century, you have the rise of these sort of competing schools of thought. And the, the three big ones are uh, incapacitation, 
deterrence and rehabilitation. And so I talked about this a little bit, but incapacitation would be like the Uncle Vernon school of thought, right? When he says, oh, just just hang him. There's nothing to be done. We just, you know, I'm just being a pragmatic incapacitation guy. And then, you know, so these other three, incapacitation and rehabilitation and deterrence, they're all trying to use the social and psychological data of the day to drive our social punishments and our social theories of justice so that we could sort of it's it's all in keeping with this idea of designing a, a better, more just world. So, and side note, there's actually some kind of fascinating stuff that happens in punishment in the 20th century because of this, because of these debates. Stuff like probation, uh, indeterm- indeterminate sentencing, where it's like, okay, you get two to ten years or whatever, and then your actual sentence is literally based on how your rehabilitation progresses. And, you know, obviously there's, there's problems with that stuff too, but I think that... that that is an improvement over the 19th century view of, of just, like, fuck them, punish, you know, punish because of the law. But, like, the criminal law is still so obsessed with these weirdly outmoded theological concepts like free will and divine punishment and, you know, the law and shit like that. Like, And when I say the law, like, with a capital L, like, natural law, like, this idea that there's this sort of platonic ideal of justice or whatever. So, but, it, you know, the sociological revolution takes place in, well, it takes place in all areas of the law, but hits the criminal law in a certain way that isn't as hard. And I think that the reason is because, like, the criminal law is so much more already determined by a retributive theoretical mode. So, but in the middle of the 20th century, we sort of switch into... Rehabilitation, incapacitation, deterrence, those are the main things, and then um, retribution kind of takes a, takes a back seat. But then something in the second half of the 20th century happens, and it, you know, it's kind of strange. Retribution makes a comeback. Now, it might have had something to do with just like a sort of general distrust of government, right? You had your, your Watergates and your Vietnams. You had your, you had your Reagan saying government is the problem. Right? And that shit fucking played. People loved that shit. They were like, yeah, man, fuck the government. Left and right, like, it was all a consensus. People, wildly different reasons for distrusting the government, but they all distrusted the government. So, you know, therefore, the project that the government could determine how to rehabilitate, how to deter, how to incapacitate, that all got kind of murky in people's minds, and they were just like, yo, back to the fucking drawing board. Back to our boy Immanuel Kant. Back to punishing people just because it feels right. Feels good, baby. Fuck them, you know? Uh, I should also mention that, that uh, racism played a big role here, as it often does in most things in American life. Uh, the civil rights movement caused a backlash from white people that reverted them from, like, a sort of do-gooder re- rehabilitation people to, like, retributionists with a fucking quickness. And so, yeah, all that is happening in the second half of the 20th century. And so... If that 80% of people in the 90s that supported capital punishment, if that's surprising to you, that is what's driving it. So then we got back into this sort of discursive mode where retribution was back on the table and not and bigger than ever. But now we have a bunch of postmodernists, or like postmodernitarians or whatever, all trying to like think through the contradictions of retribution because I mean there's it's just it's just built on a very, very faulty foundation. And so you know, first question is like, well, who the fuck has the right to punish, right? Why does Harry in this scenario, why does he get to be the one to exact a punishment on on Aunt Marge, right? And even if you agree that, that there, you know, that 
there should be a punishment here, and, and you also agree that Harry ought to be the one to inflict it, you know, what makes you think that fucking inflating someone like a balloon is the proper amount of punishment for the crime of, I guess, being generally insufferable and specifically mean about his parents' death? Right, so there's all these issues with, like, this concept of proportionality, right, and how do you determine proportionality, and then some people say, like, oh, it's not it's not necessarily about how to determine p- proportionality, it's about, like, who has the burden of proving that the punishment is proportional, and so, like, you know, some, some people come along and they're like, well, how about, how about the burden of proof is on the person doing the punishment, right, and so, in other words, Harry did the punishment, so it would be on, incumbent on him to justify that his punishment is proportional to the crime, Right, so, you know, uh, so those people would be like, okay, so it's, it's on him to prove the punishment was proportional, but, but the problem is because there's too many factors. You just can't, right, there's just too much shit that goes into it. That you would never be able to do this. So, so, so no one would ever be able to meet that burden. And so then some other people come along and they're like, okay, well, if you can't meet that burden, well, what about, like, you get this sort of band of proportionality and then only stick with, like, one side, the, the, the more lenient side of the band, Right, these are all the debates that are happening in like the early 21st century about like how to deal with the fact that retribution is just back on the table. So it's actually kind of funny because I think the narrative distinction here is supposed to be that Harry values free will while his aunt and uncle and other aunt are all these deterministic people and we're supposed to side with Harry. But this book just shows that Harry has a similarly terrible theory of justice. Whereas there is no character, at least not yet, for the version of justice that I typically ascribe to, which is restorative justice and involves reparation of harm and other principles like inclusion and dialogue and accountability to the community and stuff like that. But it doesn't have any of the sort of background assumptions about, you know, controlling the dangerous classes or dealing with, with what Loic Vaquin refers to as the, uh, the hyper-ghetto which, you know, I think it's safe to say that's the real function of the American prison system. Basically, like, the prison and the ghetto are locked in this sort of whirlpool. You could read Vaquan on that. Uh, he, he has a book called Punishing the Poor. Or, or you could read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which has a very similar thesis, but it isn't as steeped in obscure French social theory. Anyway, what were we talking about? 